Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Religion and politics have always been a volatile mix. During the rise of the religious right in the 1980s, some warned that Christians should never become allied with any particular political movement or party, but instead be co-belligerents and stay free to work with anyone whose goals align with Christ's. Teaching team member Bob Cargo brings us this message entitled King and Country, which covers Psalms 33, 2, and 46. Thank you for joining us today. ask you something. Uh, do you think that the race for president this time around might become interesting or weird at some point? <laughs> you know, this, this may be the wackiest race for the White House I could ever remember. Uh, I have a, a daughter that lived in Italy for one year. She's lived in New York City for several years, and she has a lot of friends from both places that are uh, European and have a son just came back from living in South Africa for a year, and obviously he has a lot of friends that are South African. And and they both told me that people around the world are asking this question, what in the world is going on in America? <laughs> it is a crazy time, isn't it? I mean, what is really obvious is this. There are a lot of people that are angry, they're frustrated, uh, they're fed up, and there are other people, this overlaps, that are fearful and anxious or nervous. And it seems to be true whether somebody has felt like an insider or an outsider, right? I mean, those that are uh, outsiders have felt like outsiders. They're perhaps at this point saying, I'm fed up and I'm angry and, oh boy, it's Bernie Sanders or, oh boy, it's Donald Trump. And then everybody else is saying, oh no, it's Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. <laughs> They're just freaking out, you know? Now, the question is, how do we as Christians respond you know, to this kind of climate? And frankly, even if it weren't this presidential cycle, the question is this, how do we as citizens of the kingdom of Christ interface with the kingdom of man, so to speak. As those under the authority of God, how do we also live as people under the civil authority? And that's what we want to consider today. Back on Palm Sunday, two of our church planters preached about this topic, uh, Leonce Crump at Renovation Church and McKay Caston at Creekstone Church in Dahlonega. They both had great messages. This is going to be my attempt. And in some ways, honestly, this is going to be less of a sermon than it is a lot of Scripture readings. And so I want to give you a heads up today. We're going to read a lot of Scripture, and the reason is we want to hear what God says more than what Bob says. That's why we're going to do it that way. We need to get centered uh, on the kingdom of Christ, and, and that's what this is all about. The title of today's sermon is King and Country. King and Country, and even as this graphic might illustrate, we, we have a king and he has a kingdom we're to be loyal there, and we have a country, and we are to seek to bless that country. So how do we do both of those things? I really came very close to entitling this sermon, Clinton, Cruz, Sanders, Trump, and Jesus, but I decided not to do that. <laughs> I have over here to my left uh, two boxes. Uh, the larger gold box represents the kingdom of Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. And inside of it, I have a smaller red box that represents your or my citizenship in, in whatever country we are citizens of. Probably most of us here are American citizens, maybe some of us not. The very heart of today's message is basically this. We will not understand this unless we understand it in the context of this. We will not understand that what God calls us to do and to be for our country 
unless we understand the kingdom of God. And this really is our crying need to understand this big box and to see everything else in the context of that big box. That's what it's all about. Uh, There are going to be today three basic truths that we're going to talk about. We're going to see those from three different Psalms of the Old Testament, and there will be some some lengthy scripture readings there, I warn you, as we see these three basic truths about the big gold box. But before we go there, I want to borrow a term from Steve Brown, and that is we're going to go down a side road. During the introduction, we're going to go down a side road, and we're going to go down a side road, and very quickly, we're going to look at four places in the scripture where God explicitly tells his people how to respond to the governing authorities. So follow along with me quickly. The first one of, the, one of these is in Jeremiah chapter 29. Let me give you the context and the background. Several hundred years before Jesus came, the Israelites were taken away into captivity in Babylon. And the question was, how are we as the subjects of Babylon supposed to interface with Babylon? And basically through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, your role is to bless Babylon. Here it is in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease, and seek the peace that is the shalom and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Imagine that being taken into exile in a cruel way. And yet you're to seek the peace and prosperity of this place to which you're exiled. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Basically, the Lord says, you're not of Babylon, but you're in Babylon, and your job is to bless Babylon. That's what I call you to do. Several years ago, I heard a guy speaking about the issue of how we respond in our vocations as Christians. And one of the things he said is this, and I think he's right. One of the problems many Christians in America have, especially those who are, let's say, middle age and older, is that we are really wanting America to be like the Jerusalem of old, the, the capital and city of God, or we want it to be that, like the new Jerusalem to come. But in America today, we're not living in Jerusalem, we're living in Babylon. Very important to understand and to know. We live in a post-Christian, pluralistic society where Christians are a minority. And that needs to inform how we live. And we live here to bless our country. One of our other pastors here, Randy Schlichting, has written a great book about this. It's called Minority Rules. I would highly recommend that you get it and read it. That's what we see in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see Jesus saying these words, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Some people came to Jesus and they wanted to entrap him. They asked him this question, should we pay taxes to Rome? They thought if Jesus says no, the Romans will hate him. And he says, yes, the Jews will hate him. And so Jesus very wisely says, give me a coin. They did. Whose picture's on this coin? Caesar's. So he says, render unto Caesar the thing that are Caesar's. Render unto God the things that are God's. Be loyal to the kingdom of God. But be a good subject of the Roman Empire, he says. Paul says much the same thing in 1 Timothy 2. He says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving, wow, be made for everyone, for kings, and for all those in authority. Can you imagine giving thanks for the king, the Caesar of Rome, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness? This is good and pleases God our Savior 
who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. By all men, he means this, Gentiles as well as Jews. That blew their mind. Rulers and those who are rich as well as the poor. The oppressors as well as the oppressed. God wants those people to be saved too, some of them. So he's going to call some of them to salvation. Pray for them. And basically Paul says here, be a model subject. Or if you're a citizen, be a model citizen of Rome. And then lastly, a little longer reading in Romans 13. Paul writes to these Christians living in Rome and he says this, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established, even if it's a non-Christian authority. The authorities that exist have been established by God, by his providence. Consequently, he who rebels against the authorities rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right and he'll commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes. Interesting we're reading this so close to April 15th, right? This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. It's amazing that God would say this to his people who were living under the rule of Rome. Much more that could be said. But our crying need today is this, to understand this box, to find our security, our freedom, and our hope here Because if that happens, it will free us to do what God calls us to do right here. And that's where we want to go today in today's message. Here's the thesis of today's message. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to ask you to read it aloud with me the second time that I go through it. Here's what we're trying to say. The kingdom of Jesus is to have our highest allegiance, provides our ultimate hope and security, and we carry out our responsibilities as citizens of any earthly nation in light of his kingdom. Would you read that aloud with me, please? That might help. The kingdom of Jesus is to have our highest allegiance, provides our ultimate hope and security, and we carry out our responsibilities as citizens of any earthly nation in light of his kingdom. Let's stop again and let's pray. Lord, in the time that we have here remaining, we ask you that you would show us King Jesus that we would believe in his kingdom that has come now in our hearts and someday it will come with power. Set our hearts upon that kingdom. Set our hearts upon that king. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how can I set aside the despair, the anger, the frustration, the hatred, the idolatry that comes from looking too much at the little red box? How can I find my security in the kingdom of Christ? Today we're going to look at three passages and three truths. We want to look at Jesus and our hope, Jesus and our allegiance, and Jesus in our security. And let me ask you to work today hard at listening because of this. We're going to read a lot of scripture. Don't tune out. Focus in as we read. And I'm going to stick close to my notes so that I'll be careful in what I say, okay? So that's where we're going. Consider, first of all, today, Jesus and our hope. The kingdom of Jesus is our ultimate hope. 
I was speaking very recently with a friend of mine who's African-American and who is a follower of the Lord, and he said to me this. He said, Bob, a lot of us in the African-American community are disappointed in President Obama. He has not provided for our community what we had hoped. That is not a slam on Barack Obama. It doesn't matter if a president is black or white, Democrat or Republican, conservative, moderate, or liberal. Our elected officials will disappoint us 10 times out of 10. In one way or another, they will never provide for us what we would hope. And one of the problems in our culture right now is way too many people are looking to the government to be their ultimate hope. Let me recommend a writer to you. His name is David Brooks. He's an editorialist in New York City. I think he is a conservative Jew. I think he may have recently been converted to Christ from what I've heard. I like everything that I've ever read that he has written. He and also Dr. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Church in New York, have made the following observation. That in our culture today, the political discourse has become less and less civil. People's pride and anger about political issues has become bigger and bigger. And people's despair and frustration has become deeper and deeper because they are placing their ultimate faith in government as their ultimate hope. I think they're right on target about that. God never instituted government to be the object of our ultimate faith and hope. Psalm 33 is a psalm about the futility of putting our hope in men or women. And it's a psalm about how we have to put our hope in the Lord. Here's one of our lengthy readings today. Follow with me. The psalmist says, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Upright and righteous by grace alone. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play joyfully and shout for joy. It's a psalm of praise and joy. Why? Because we get that from putting our hope in the Lord. Verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the peoples of the world revere him. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. Now let me say, in the Old Testament before Jesus came, that chosen nation, that chosen people was Israel. But we Americans are not the chosen nation of God. We Americans are not the chosen people of God. The chosen nation and people of God today are all the followers of Jesus that are spread out through all the countries around the world. We are his people. Verse 16, he says, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. That's not a prohibition against having armies or warriors. It's a prohibition about against putting your ultimate hope in those warriors and armies. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance, despite all its strength it cannot save. Today we might say a tank, a missile, a bomber is a vain hope for deliverance. Verse 18, but the Lord's eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. In him, in him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, O Lord even as we put our hope in you. The kingdom of Jesus is our ultimate hope. Now, this is not a sermon about who to vote for or how to vote in the presidential election or for governor or congressman or senator or anything else. The sermon is much bigger than that. It's much more important than that. It's primarily about this box, not this little box. But I do see something in Psalm 33 that informs me on how to vote when I vote. 
Let me share with you four things I look for a candidate, whether it's a president, governor, senator, or whatever. This is not thus saith the Lord for you. This is my conviction for me. The first of these informs the next two. And the first one comes from this psalm. And it's simply this. One of the things I look for is a candidate who at least professes and has a credible profession of faith in God. If I'm to hope in the Lord, I want to have elected officials who put their hope in the Lord. Now, you know, that's the Constitution of America does not demand that at all. But for me, for my conscience, if I'm to hope in the Lord, I much prefer someone who at least says, yes, I put my hope in the Lord too. Number two flows from that, and that is I look for a candidate who has an upright character that brings respect. That character is going to be seen or lack thereof in his or her words, in the way he or she treats people, in the way he or she treats the truth. You know, I wouldn't hire someone with poor character. I wouldn't choose to work for a boss with poor character, and I don't want to vote for a candidate with poor character. Number three also flows from number one, and that is, I look for a candidate who seems to have values and policies that reflect a Judeo-Christian world and life view for the common good. Now, that's a mouthful. I'll say it again. They have values and policies that reflect a Judeo-Christian world and life view, but not just for Jews or Christians, but for all people for the common good. Here's the truth of the matter. No party gets it all right, and no party has it all wrong. The gospel affirms what is good and right and true wherever it is found, and the gospel rebukes and stands against what is wrong in whatever political party it is found. Our allegiance is to the king of kings, and that informs how we like or don't like any party or any candidate. And the number four is this. I look for candidates that have sound judgment, competence, and ability. If I were to see a Christian candidate but think to myself, I don't think this person has sound judgment, I don't think they have competence, I don't think they have ability, I wouldn't vote for them simply because they profess to have hope in the Lord. But for me, it makes sense to me. If I'm to hope in the Lord, I want candidates and people that lead us who also hope in the Lord. But don't miss my main point. My main point is don't put your hope in the people you vote for. That's what I'm saying. You can vote for the people that you think you should vote for, but don't put your hope in them. Put your hope in God alone. Do you know what we really long for and yearn for? What we're yearning for, what we're longing for, what our hearts, in a sense, remember and long for is the garden way back when. And the new Jerusalem that's going to come when Jesus returns, the new heavens and the new earth, that's what you're you're yearning for. That's what you're hoping for. Did you know in the New Testament, the return of Jesus is called the blessed what? The blessed hope. The blessed hope. That is when all of our hopes will be realized for the country, the nation, the city, the environment, the community we really want. It's all in the hope of Jesus when he returns. The Bible gives us another bit of good news. That hope that will be ultimately ultimately realized when Jesus returns, we can begin to experience that kind of hope right now. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15 as he brings this letter to a close, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And where do we find that hope? He describes it in the previous verse, verse 12. He says, there shall come the root of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of King David. The root of Jesse is Jesus. So he's saying here, there shall come Jesus. 
He who arises, that is, raised from the dead to rule over the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles hope. For all of us who are followers of Jesus who aren't Jewish, we have found our hope in Jesus. And then in the verses just previous to this, Paul says something that's amazing. Here in this part of Romans, he's talking about how Jews and Gentiles should treat each other and relate to each other. And remember, these are people who had hated each other for centuries. But Jews and Gentiles were both becoming followers of Jesus and were building churches together. And so Paul says this, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He's saying Gentiles and Jews love each other. And it's only in the gospel that people of different colors and people of different races and people of different ethnicities can find our oneness together. And they will know that we are Christians by our love. As the people who observed the Christians in the first two or three centuries, they were blown away. And they said, my, how these people love one another. And that's because our hope is in Jesus. Jesus and our hope. Secondly today, Jesus and our allegiance. Second thing I want to say is the kingdom of Jesus demands our highest allegiance. Now, I know this is going to surprise you because I don't look old enough for this to be true. Hi. Uh, I've been preaching since the 1970s. And uh, during the 1970s and 80s and 90s, like Memorial Day, Independence Day, I would come back to this theme of Christianity in our country. And sometime in the 90s, I began reviewing and looking back at the sermons I preached in the 70s and 80s, and I came to a very embarrassing realization, one that caused me to grieve deeply, and that is this, I realized that my sermons have been upside down. And what I mean by that is this, I wanted America to get right with God so that God would protect America, period. You understand what I'm saying? I wanted God I wanted Americans to get right with God because I so cherished my lifestyle as an American, all the benefits of living in America, and I wanted God to preserve my way of life. And I had to admit, as I look back at those sermons, that I was wanting the protection of God because I loved this kingdom, not that I loved his kingdom. I wanted the the kingdom of Christ literally to serve the kingdom of man. And no, it's the other way around. The kingdom of Jesus is to have our highest allegiance. Don't misunderstand me. I love America. I am thankful for America. I am so glad I'm an American. And I'm so glad that in the providence of God, God has used America to some degree to propel the gospel around the world. But you know what? My allegiance to America is way below my allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus. His kingdom stands forever. Our nation may come and it may go. God may choose to bless us. He may choose not to bless us. But I had to repent of whole sermons I had preached because I did not have my highest allegiance belonging to Jesus. Psalm 2 tells us why our allegiance belongs to Jesus. Follow in another long reading. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, that is, the Messiah. 
the kings of the Old Testament, but it foreshadows Jesus. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The reality is that all nations have rebelled against the lordship of Christ, including this American country we live in. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king, kings of the Old Testament foreshadowing Jesus, on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decrees of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son, today I become your father. That's one of the most often quoted verses of the Old Testament, used in the New Testament to talk about Jesus. Verse 8, ask of me, God the Father says to God the Son, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. When Jesus comes back, he'll reign over all the earth. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the Son, that is, acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, the truth of the matter is this. Either we will take refuge in Jesus or we will be judged and condemned by Jesus. Those are the only options. Either we'll take refuge in Jesus or we will be condemned by Jesus. How do we take refuge in Jesus? We put our faith in the gospel, in his life, death, resurrection, and reign. And we throw ourselves upon him as our Savior. We trust in him and submit to him as Lord. And we find him in that day of days at the end of time that he will be our deliverer and not our condemner. The kingdom of Jesus demands our highest allegiance. Now, why our highest allegiance? Well, if you look at Psalm 2... It just really looks like, like there's only one reason, and that is you better submit or you'll be condemned. Now, now, there is a reality of his sovereign judgment, but there's another reality in Psalm 2, and that is the reality of the gospel of grace. Where do we see the gospel of grace in Psalm 2? Actually, Psalm 2 is a prophecy that points ahead to the crucifixion of our king and the resurrection of our king. It points ahead to the gospel. Follow with me in these verses. In Acts 4, in Acts 4, the Christians are being persecuted to the point of being threatened with death. But God delivers them out of jail, and then they praise God, and this is what they say in their prayer. O Lord, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And what was that? The crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm 2 is a prophecy that God, out of his grace, would send his son, our king, to die for us. Who has a king who gives his life for his subjects? We do. And here's a prophecy of it. This is also a prophecy of the resurrection of the king. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching. He says, brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. We tell you the good news, the gospel. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children. How? By raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I become your father. Our greatest allegiance belongs to Jesus. When I think of someone, an example of someone who dearly loved their country, was a great example of being an ideal citizen and supporter of their country, but who loved the kingdom of Jesus better and higher, I think of Eric Little. Made famous to all of us, maybe many of us here are known to us, through the movie Chariots of Fire. 
Eric Little was born in 1902 to missionary parents in China. He was educated in London at Eltham College. And by the time he got to college, he was an outstanding athlete. He was the captain of the college's cricket team and rugby team and actually was selected for the Scottish national rugby team. He also became known as the fastest man in Scotland. As the movie famously portrays, he represented Scotland and Great Britain in the 1924 Olympics. He dearly loved his country. He represented well his country. He was loyal to his country. But his highest allegiance was to the kingdom of Christ. The movie vividly depicts this because his his best event was the 100-meter dash. But the qualifying heat for the 100 meter was on Sunday. And his own personal conviction was that he was not to compete on the Sabbath. And so he willingly sets aside his strongest event in order to be subject to his King of Kings and Lord of Lords, even if it disappointed his earthly rulers. In the movie, this is how it depicts what Eric Little did on the day that he would have been reading, that would have been racing in the 100-meter event. Though he forfeited his opportunity in the 100-meter, Eric Little went on to win gold in the 400-meter and bronze in the 200-meter. And then the next year, he walked away from all the riches and opportunities he would have had in Scotland as an Olympic hero. And he returned to China to be a missionary where he lived from 1925 until he died in 1945. The Japanese had invaded China at that time, and Eric Little died in an internment camp managed and supervised by the Japanese. He had an opportunity to leave and return to Scotland, but he gave up his place and gave that place instead to a young British lady who was expecting a baby. According to a fellow missionary who was also in that internment camp, the final words spoken by Eric Little before he died were the words, complete surrender. Complete surrender. He loved his country There could have been no better citizen of Scotland, but his highest allegiance belonged to the kingdom of Christ. That's where it belonged. The kingdom of Jesus is our ultimate hope. The kingdom of Jesus demands and deserves our highest allegiance. The last point I want to share with you today is simply one in conclusion, and that is Jesus and our security. Jesus and our security. The kingdom of Jesus provides our strongest really our only security. I don't know if you were here a few weeks ago at our Global Spotlight weekend. We had some brothers and sisters here from the Middle East, and in a place where Christians today are being threatened with death and experiencing death because of their faith, it was so obvious for these followers of Jesus that their highest allegiance is to Jesus. Their ultimate hope comes from the kingdom of Jesus. Their strongest security comes from Jesus. You know what they ask us to pray for? They did not ask us to pray that they would be delivered from persecution. They asked us to pray that the gospel would go forward in spite and maybe even because of their persecution. What an astounding example of what I'm trying to say. I'm sure they love their nation, but they love the kingdom of Jesus more. In 2001, on 9-11, I was pastoring a church in, near Orlando, Florida. And on the day that the Twin Towers came down, I was out for a walk, and Margaret Ann came to find me and brought me back home, and I watched on TV as the towers fell. And I knew, obviously, that whatever I had planned to preach on that Sunday needed to be set aside. And instead, I preached on Psalm 46, 
Listen as I read this last lengthy reading to see why we are not to be afraid, whatever happens to our country, and the kingdom of God is our strongest security. He says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, the mountains quake with the surging. He says, what if oh, everything just is totally turned upside down? There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Us and our, not being America, but being the followers of Jesus. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire, referring to the return of Jesus at the end of time. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I'll tell you my friends, I don't know what God's plan for America is. I really don't. But I know what God has planned for us as his children. He will take care of us. Always, always, always. A fascinating part of Psalm 46 is verse 4. It says this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The reason that's interesting is this, there is no river in Jerusalem. So what's he talking about? I think he's talking about the new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven when Jesus returns. And this is the way the new Jerusalem is described and the river in it in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, the new Jerusalem. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree, get this, are for the healing of the nations. When he comes back, his kingdom will be around the world. And yes, it will be the healing of America if America still exists at that time. But it will not just be for the healing of America. It will be for the healing of all the nations is God has his people from every tribe and tongue and nation from around the world. Praise God. You may be wondering to yourself, how can I be part of this? How can I find this kind of allegiance, this kind of hope, this kind of security? How can I have a river that makes me glad? Well, this is the way Jesus put it in John 7. The writer of John says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes, whoever trusts in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. There is a river that makes glad the city of God, and there is a river that makes glad the people of God. When we throw ourselves upon the cross of Christ and the grace of God, when we surrender to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, he pours out into us his spirit. And that spirit gives us his joy. And that spirit gives us strength to live as citizens of heaven. And that spirit changes everything. Trusting in Jesus gives us the fullness of the spirit. My friends, that is our greatest need. 
Yes, we need to live responsibly and rightly related to this little kingdom we call America. But we won't know how to do it unless we focus first on the freedom, the security, the hope, the priority that belongs to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May his name be praised here and now and forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this King of kings. We thank you for this Lord of lords. We thank you that he has come to save sinners like us. And, Lord, we do not know your plan for America. We know that nations rise and nations fall, but your kingdom lasts forever. And so, therefore, Lord, we gladly throw ourselves upon the gospel of our Savior and our King. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you that he was raised for us. We thank you that forever we will live with him. May we honor him in the way we honor this country. May we honor him as we seek to bless this country. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.